elephants, lawnmowers, migraines, donuts, toenails, kissing. What do these six things have in common? Elephants, lawnmowers, migraines, donuts, toenails, kissing. What do these six things have in common? Answer, they are the first six words that came to my mind when I tried to think of six random things as I worked on this sermon. I don't know that there's much of a connection there between elephants, lawnmowers, migraines, donuts, toenails, and kissing. And I don't know what it says about me that these were the first six words that came to my mind when I tried to think of six random things. It's not like I have a passion for elephants or lawnmowers. And I know for sure that I hate migraines and toenails. They are just there. Whose mind drifts to toenails? Listen, if you're passionate about toenails, you might have issues I don't know why toenails popped into my mind, but I do know this about two of the other things that popped into my mind. I love donuts, and I love kissing. And I firmly believe that donuts will be on the new earth when Jesus comes back to make all things new. They have to be. Donuts have to be served. They have to be a part of the wedding supper of the Lamb. Donuts have to be available in heaven. And my proof is Romans 8.32, where Paul says this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God gave us his son, Jesus Christ, how will he and his son, Jesus, not graciously give us all things? And part of the all things that Paul speaks of here has to include donuts, Right? It has to. I have to believe that there will be donuts in heaven. So I don't particularly care for elephants, toenails, lawnmowers, and migraines, but I love donuts and I love kissing. I hope I get to kiss Heather Magnus for all of eternity. I hope I get to kiss my wife forever. I hope we get to kiss each other with glorified lips. And I love kissing on my children. In fact, a couple of days ago, our 10-month-old girl, Sapora, I was holding her arm. She was asleep, and I just couldn't stop kissing her. Parents, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Sometimes, do you ever just think, I just want to eat them? They're so cute. I'm not the only one that thinks like a cannibal. Sometimes you're like, I just want to eat you. I I love kissing on babies. I love kissing on my children. The problem, though, is that as they get older, they don't want you kissing on them. But I don't think there's anything better than kissing on a baby. And I hope I get to kiss on my kids for all of eternity. But what do these six things have in common? Besides the fact that they were the first six random things I thought of when I tried to think of six random things, here's what they have in common. There's an app for each one of these things. In the Apple App Store, you can find an app for these six things. So as I was working on this sermon, I went to the App Store on my iPhone, and I wanted to think of the first six random things that popped into my mind, and then I wanted to see if there was an app for each one. And sure enough, there was. Sure enough, there is. There's an app for elephants. There's an app called Elephant Simulator, and here's the description. 
Enter into the wild savanna and live the life of an elephant. Explore a vast world filled with ferocious animals of all shapes and sizes. Start your own herd. Scavenge for food and battle for your life against fierce predators like hyenas, crocodiles, and lions. If you ever wanted to be a virtual elephant, you can. If you're into elephants and you would like to be an elephant, you can. Because if you're into elephants, there's an app for that. There's an app for lawnmowers. It's called Lawnmower Forum. And here's the description. The Lawnmower Forum app gives you access to the friendly and helpful lawnmower, lawn care, landscape, and equipment discussion community, lawnmowerforum.com. In addition to getting questions on lawn mowing and lawn care answered, equipment discussions for John Deere, Craftsman, etc. If you're into lawn mowers and lawn care and you want to read up on that and hear what others have to say about lawn mowers and lawn care, guess what? There's an app for that. And there's an, actually an app for migraines. It's called Eye Headache that helps you keep track of the frequency of your migraines. Now, that one I would find useful because I get migraines often. But if you get migraines, guess what? There's an app for that. And donuts. This is where you can tell that donuts are a hit with humanity because there are hundreds of donut maker games. Now, I'm not really into playing games where you can make your own donuts. However, when they come up with an app that can make a real donut appear when you're craving one, then you can count on me paying for that app. I imagine that's how heaven will be. You desire a donut and then poof, one appears. I just need someone to make that app now. Sadly, there's not a real donut maker app, but if you love donuts so much that you like to make virtual donuts, then you're in luck because there are apps, plural, for that. And toenails. There's actually an app called Ingrown Toenail Removal. And here's the description. Take on the role of a virtual surgeon. You are in control as you perform virtual ingrown toenail removal surgery. Inject, cut, yank, and bandage your way to optimum toe health in this highly interactive educational game. If you just got excited that there's an app for that, an app for toenails, please know that the pastors are available for counseling for you later this week. <laughs> Lastly, kissing. Believe it or not, there's actually an app for kissing. You can kiss your iPhone, and this app will let you know if you're a good kisser. <laughs> but if you purchase this app and use this app, I'm not sure the pastors can help you. <laughs> the bottom line is this. There's an app for everything these days. As the famous saying goes, there's an app for that. You can find an app for anything these days. And it's pretty clear that I need to find a psychological evaluation app and figure out what it means that I thought of those six random things, elephants, lawnmowers, migraines, donuts, toenails, and kissing. I need a psychological evaluation app to figure out why I thought of those six things first. And believe it or not, there's actually an app for that. But since I already know that I'm a little crazy, I'm going to 
pass on purchasing that app. But whatever it is, there's an app for it these days. And Peter will say something very similar to us as he closes out his letter. He doesn't mention donuts or elephants or toenails, but he does mention kissing. And we'll get to that in a moment. But first, Peter wants us to know that whatever we're going through in life, there's grace for that. Wherever you find yourself today, there's grace for that. Whatever situation you find yourself in today, there's grace for that. Whatever is going on in your life right now, there's grace for that. God's grace is there to help you, to sustain you, to strengthen you, and to hold you up. That's how grace works. No trial, no situation, no relationship, no heartache is off limits to God's grace. There's grace for whatever it is that you're facing today. And that's exactly what these churches needed to hear. And that's why Peter ends his letter focusing on God's grace. Look at verse 12 in 1 Peter chapter 5. We're ending our series, which we called Exiles. We're ending it today in 1 Peter. So look at verse 12, 1 Peter chapter 5. And hear the word of the gracious Lord who we love and who definitely loves us. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. We see God's grace at work in the life of this man named Silvanus. He's also, he's probably the same guy named Silas that you read about in other passages in the New Testament. God's grace was at work in the life of Silvanus or Silas as I'll refer to him from here on out. And we see God's grace at work in his life because he was one of the early leaders of the early church. You can only attribute that to God's grace. It was God's grace working in the life of Silas that would cause Peter to call him a faithful brother here in verse 12. But Silas also had a few bumps along the way where he absolutely needed God's grace. In Acts Chapter 15, a very famous story. Paul and Barnabas got into a heated argument about taking Mark with them on a missionary journey. You don't have to turn there. The verses will be on the screens. But Acts 15, verses 36 through 40 tells us this. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So in this situation, Paul doesn't want to take Mark with him because Mark deserted them earlier on a missionary journey, but Barnabas insists that they take Mark with them on the new journey. So things got a little bit heated between Barnabas and Paul. 
Luke, the author of Acts, said that there arose a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. I think that's a nice, sanctified way of saying that they got in each other's faces. That they stared each other down. That they raised their voices and and maybe even pushed one another. And so they separated. And Barnabas took Mark, who's mentioned in this passage as well in 1 Peter, And Paul took Silas or Silvanus. Now, don't you think Silas needed God's grace in that situation? Two of his friends almost threw down. They got mad at each other, raised their voices, maybe even said a few choice words, maybe even pushed each other, and then they went their separate ways. And Silas felt caught in the middle. Surely Silas needed God's grace to get him through that awkwardness and to be able to continue doing ministry knowing that two of his friends were mad at each other. Silas did need God's grace. And that's why we are told in verse 40, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. They were all commended by the local church to the grace of the Lord. Silas needed grace. Paul needed grace. Barnabas needed grace. And Mark needed grace. And surely Silas needed grace along with Paul. One chapter later in Acts chapter 16, another famous story where both Silas and Paul were thrown in jail for preaching the gospel. Here's how Luke describes it in Acts 16 verses 22 to 24. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Attacked, clothes ripped off, probably they were naked, then beaten with rods and many blows, Luke says, and feet in stocks. What got Paul and Silas through all that? The grace of God. And then Paul and Silas were eventually released. But then in the next chapter, a mob gathered around the house they were staying in and wanted to drag them out and kill them. So I think if you could interview Silas or Silvanus and ask him how he survived the strained relationship of some friends that he had, how he survived getting beaten, how he survived being persecuted for the gospel, how he survived being falsely accused, how he survived being thrown in jail, and how he survived almost having a mob tear him apart. If you could ask Silas how he survived all of that, if you could ask Silas how a disciple could endure all of that suffering, I think Silas would say to you, there's grace for that. I think he would tell you that no matter what you go through in life, God's grace is sufficient. And I think that's why Peter tells us that Silas or Silvanus was a faithful brother because he knew that Silas had endured quite a bit of suffering for the gospel. And who better to deliver this letter to a group of suffering churches than a man who had seen some action out there in a world full of gospel haters? That's probably what Peter means when he says that he has written briefly to them by Silvanus. 
Silvanus or Silas was probably the one who delivered Peter's letter to these churches. He was the one who risked his life to deliver this letter in a world where Christians were being persecuted. And he may have even helped Peter in writing it, meaning he served as his secretary. As, as Peter dictated this letter, Silas may have been the one who was actually writing everything down. But Silas, Silvanus, is not the point of the passage. Jesus is. The grace of God is the point of the passage, which is what Peter has been declaring to these churches. He says in verse 12 that he has been exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's the point of the passage, the grace of God. Jesus is the point of the passage. Now we're going to come back around to verse 12 in a moment, but I want to skip over it for a second and look at verses 13 through 14 first and show you where else I see God's grace at work. So look at verse 12. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. We see the grace of God at work in these verses too. First, we see it at work in the church community. You've heard me say it numerous times through the years, and I just stole it from Paul Tripp, but your walk with God is a community project. It involves the entire church. It's not just about you and Jesus. It's about us, the church community, being the people of God. And we see that here when Peter mentions she who is at Babylon. Who is the she who is in Babylon that Peter is talking about? Well, Peter is referring to the church in Rome. He's referring to the local churches in Rome when he uses the term Babylon. And Peter says that these believers in Rome, where he was writing from, they were chosen by God just like the churches that he was writing to. Remember at the very beginning of chapter 1, Peter said, you are the elect exiles chosen. And Peter's saying those believers in Rome are elect exiles. They have been chosen by God too. They were a part of the church that Jesus came for. They were a part of the people of God, part of God's chosen people. And Peter, writing this letter from Rome, tells his readers that the churches in Rome send their greetings to their brothers and sisters. It's just another reminder that God's grace is at work in every church that preaches the gospel. Peter's audience was connected to these other churches because of God's grace. And we also see God's grace at work in the name Mark. Peter calls Mark here his son, and what he means is that he is Mark's spiritual father. He's Mark's mentor. He's the one who discipled Mark, and and church history affirms this as well. But what's interesting about Mark, and why I say that I see the grace of God when I see the name Mark, is what we read earlier about Mark. This is Mark, the one who abandoned Paul on that missionary journey. He quit when things got rough. So that means he either got homesick or he chickened out and went home. But either way, he abandoned Paul on this missionary journey. And that's why Paul did not want to take Mark along with him on the new missionary journey. Because Paul's thinking he's a quitter. But here in First Peter, we see that Mark is once again involved in ministry. 
In fact, later in his life, the Apostle Paul would say this about Mark in 2 Timothy 4.11. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. What brought Paul around to see the usefulness of Mark? Grace. What made Paul change his mind and forgive Mark? Grace. What made Paul loosen up and not be so uptight about Mark? It was grace. It was all God's grace. Grace has a way of changing everything. That's what grace does. Grace changes everything. Grace does not obey a sign that says, do not trespass. Grace does not obey, do not trespass signs. Grace will trespass. Grace will break the rules and hop over a fence in order to mend fences. You can't keep God's grace out. It's wild. It, it runs wild and does its thing. Grace plays by its own rules. And the rules that grace plays by is the glory of God in his son, Jesus Christ. Grace plays by its own rules. Nothing is off limits to grace. Maybe there's a strained relationship in your life today. Maybe you felt God nudging you. Maybe the Holy Spirit has been speaking and working in your heart, calling out you to make the first move and see some reconciliation happen. That's what grace does. Grace rings your doorbell and when you answer the door with the chain still hooked and you peek between the crack to see who's there, grace will kick the door down. Grace changes everything. Maybe there's a relationship in your life or a situation where grace wants to hop the fence. Are you open? Are you willing to humble yourself and say, God, come do what you do. Come glorify your son through this messed up situation. Grace changes everything. And grace certainly changed Mark's life because some scholars believe, and I do too, that the man described in the following verses that I'm about to read with you was in fact Mark. In Mark's own gospel, he describes the time when Jesus was being uh, arrested and all the disciples fled and ran away scared. And then Mark describes another person who was there who ran away in a very interesting way. And I think Mark was describing himself. In Mark chapter 14, verses 51 to 52, he, he tells us this. And a young man followed him, that's Jesus, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Many scholars think that this man was Mark describing himself in his own gospel story. And if Mark is the guy who deserted Jesus, if Mark is the guy who was so scared that he tried to run away as fast as he could, if Mark is the guy who was so scared and tried to run away as fast as he could that when they grabbed him, he wanted to get away so badly that they ripped his clothes off and he ran away naked, if Mark is that guy and we read about him being involved in ministry in 1 Peter, then I'd chalk that up to the grace of God. Grace changed Mark's very messy life. 
Grace changed Mark from a quitter and one who always ran away to one who got plugged into local church ministry. Grace changed Mark's messy life. Maybe you're a quitter and you run because the church has burned you. Maybe you're a quitter and you just run because you don't like it when things get heated, when things get hard in church life. So you just, you kind of come in and hear a sermon and leave. Grace changed Mark's life. Grace can change yours too and help you get plugged into church ministry. That's what grace does. It changes the messy lives of sinners who look to Jesus Christ alone. And grace not just changes individuals, but it also changes church communities. It'll change a church body. In fact, grace will turn a church into a bunch of kissers. That's what grace does. Grace can turn a church community into a bunch of kissers. Look at verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Now what in the world do you do with this verse? Are we supposed to be doing this? Are we supposed to be coming in here and kissing one another? If you think the Bible should be interpreted literally, then you should have kissed every single person that you saw when you walked in here this morning. So should we do that? Is God calling us to kiss one another as a way of greeting? Or is a hug or a handshake enough? Well, first, know that the Bible mentions greeting one another with a kiss five times in the New Testament. So it must be important to God. God likes to see his children kissing one another. But the question becomes, is this just a cultural thing? Was this something that Peter's culture did as a way of greeting one another? And are we called to imitate that or to find some corresponding gesture in our own culture? I think the answer is yes. Yes, this was a cultural thing. Yes, we should find a corresponding cultural gesture. I don't think we are being called to kiss one another in this passage. I think it's a cultural thing. I think it's something that Peter and people in his time and in his culture did, and many cultures do this today. In many cultures, people greet one another with a kiss on the cheeks or even on the lips. In fact, there was a woman in the church that I pastored in Texas who would kiss you on the cheeks. She's an older lady and very southern, and she would come into the church offices to talk to me and the three other pastors, and she would sometimes give us a hug or a kiss on the cheek. We were like sons to her. Well, one day she was leaving, and she went to give me a hug, and I thought she was going to give me a kiss on the cheek, but instead she grabbed my cheeks and looked me in the eyes and said with her southern accent, I just love that you're our pastor. I love you and Heather so much. But she didn't kiss me on the cheeks. She planted one on my lips. (laughs) On my lips. Now, I know she didn't mean anything inappropriate by it, but I made sure I turned my head every time she gave me a hug. Every time she came in for a hug, I turned the other cheek. (laughs) This was just her way of showing the love that she has for people. And I love this 
lady very dearly and I'll be seeing her, Lord willing, in a few weeks when we go on vacation and you know what? I can't wait to get kissed by her. I'll turn my cheek. That's what Peter's getting at here. It's cultural. This lady, like many cultures, loves to show love and affection and care by greeting people with a kiss. In fact, I had to learn this, uh, a lesson in African culture once. In the summers during college, I used to take teenagers overseas and go on mission trips, and I spent three summers in Ghana, West Africa, and I had to learn that in that culture, men hold hands. Heterosexual men hold hands and walk in public. It's like, you know, doing a fist bump or bumping chest and saying, what's up, bro? How they do it over there is they hold hands and they walk in public. It's just them saying, you're my bro. We're, we're, we're best friends. So when I first arrived in Ghana, I had quite a shock when one of the pastors came up next to me and just started holding my hand. And I'm like, what is this guy doing? <laughs> it's cultural in Ghana. And in our culture, men do not hold hands as a sign of brotherhood and friendship. And we may not greet one another with a kiss of love here at Grace, but we can do what our culture does and give a hug or a handshake or a fist bump. Let me say a word to the teenage boys here, though, about verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. This is not a verse, teenage boys, that is to be obeyed literally. So don't go up to that cute girl in the youth group and plant a big kiss on her and say, I'm just obeying 1 Peter 5, 14. Don't go there. If a guy does that, girls, you have my permission to then obey Deuteronomy 25, 9, which says, pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. (laughs) The bottom line is this. Grace should so change us that we love one another from the heart, like Peter said in chapter one. Grace should so change us that we care for one another, that we greet one another with excitement on Sundays, that we hug and care for and pray for one another. And that's why we all, I always tell you at the end of each service, greet one another on your way out. That's what grace does in a church body. It causes us to love each other. It causes us to forgive each other. It causes us to work towards restoration and to care for one another, all for the glory of Jesus. So whatever the situation is in the church, our heart response should always be, there's grace for that. Whatever the situation is, our response should be, there's grace for that. There's grace to help you love others, grace to help you care for others, grace to help you forgive others. Grace changes everything. And the main thing that grace changes is our status with God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, We were enemies of God and grace came and made us adopted sons and daughters. And it is this grace that gave us peace with God. And it is this grace that Peter has been talking about throughout his entire letter. 
Remember that in verse 12, Peter tells us that he has been exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. What Peter means is that everything that he's been telling them is all wrapped up in God's grace. Remember what we looked at in this series it's, it's all been about God's grace to us in Christ. So here's a grace review, if you will, that we will rehearse together so that you can stand firm in it. Here's a grace review of what Peter has exhorted and declared throughout this letter. And the call for us today is to stand firm in that grace. We saw in this series that Jesus loves messy people, that he loves broken people. Amen. I don't know about you, but I'm a mess and I'm broken and I'm glad that Jesus is not disgusted with me. I'm so glad that he loves messy, broken people. We saw that Jesus just can't keep away from sinners. He loves sinners. We saw that we are called to find our identity and our hope in Jesus' work and not ours. We saw in this series that we are not to get obsessed over our obedience, but rather be obsessed about Jesus' obedience for us. You understand that's the call of the gospel, yes? Don't be obsessed about your obedience. Be obsessed about Jesus' obedience for you because you know why? Your obedience stinks. And Jesus Christ doesn't. He fully obeyed the law for you. Be obsessed over that when you blow it. We saw that Jesus loves weird people that were exiles in this world, that were strangers in this world, that were pilgrims. That's grace. Stand firm in it. We saw that we live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of the triune God. That we live in God's favor because of Jesus and his unabated delight. We saw that to be in union with Christ means, as Sinclair Ferguson said, that it's as if all the medals and honors of Christ are pinned to your chest and all of heaven salutes you. That's what it means to belong to Jesus, to be holy or set apart, is that you belong to Jesus, you've been united to him by faith, and now because of Jesus, in spite of how you live your life, because of Jesus, it's as if all the medals and honors of Christ have been pinned to your chest and all of heaven salutes you. That's grace. Stand firm in it. We saw that because of Jesus, we can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, even when we undergo trials and suffering. And we saw that God's transforming grace, in his transforming grace, God will take us where we haven't intended to go in order to produce in us what we could not achieve on our own. That's transforming grace. God does not leave us alone in our sin. He takes us places, situations, trials, suffering. He takes us places we would not choose to go in order to change us and to transform us because we could never get that transformation on our own. That's grace. Stand firm in it. 
God has placed some of you in the situation that you're in right now in order to transform you, to make you more like his son, because you just can't get that by reading the Bible and praying. He has to take you places, hard places, so that you're dependent upon him, so that his spirit can work in your heart to transform you and make you more like your son because you can't produce that change on your own. It's his grace, his transforming grace, that leads you to those places so that you cry out and say, I can do nothing without you. That's grace. Transforming grace, but it's grace. Stand firm in it. We saw that grace gets all of the glory when it has all of our hope. Meaning, Jesus gets all of the glory in our salvation and in our lives when we put all of our trust and our hope in him. And we saw that when someone really irks you, you should give them grace. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. That's grace. Stand firm in it. We saw that when you are burdened with the guilt of your sin, the last thing that God wants for you is to run away from him. When you are burdened with the guilt of your sin and you feel terrible, the last thing in the world that God wants of you is to run away from him in that moment. He wants you instead to run to him in that moment when you are burdened with the guilt and the stain and the ugliness and the stench of your sin. He doesn't want you to hide from him. He wants you to burst through the doors of heaven and say, Father, help me, forgive me. The last thing that God wants for you is for you to run away from him. Don't be like a little child and run away from home when you blow it. Barge into your father's bedroom door and say, Daddy, here I am. Forgive me and help me. That's grace. Stand firm in it. We saw that Jesus took our shame on the cross. We saw that the delight that God the Father has in his son Jesus is now given to us. The delight, the volcanic delight that God the Father has for his son Jesus has been given to us. As Christ is precious to the Father. And is Jesus precious to the Father? Shake your heads. Is he? Is his son precious to him? That's how God feels about you because you're in union with Christ. There's this volcanic eruption of love and joy and delight over his children because we are in union with Christ. We've been made precious. That's grace. Stand firm in it. This is the grace of God, grace. We ought to figure out grace. We should know what grace is. It's in our name. It's our first name here. We should know what our first name means. What I just said is the grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it when the devil roars. As we saw last week, ignore the devil's roar. This is the true grace of God. You cannot earn his love through your obedience. You cannot earn or keep his love through your performance. You cannot impress God with your stellar quiet times. Big deal that you read all the way through Leviticus. You think that impresses God? You know what impresses God? His son living a perfect life without sin, fully obeying the law. His son going to the cross, bearing the curse of the law for us. His son being resurrected, ascended and sitting at his right hand. That's what impresses God, not your stellar quiet times. 
Jesus impressed God for you. It's all grace from top to bottom, beginning to end. Stand firm in it. And there's grace to forgive you today. There's grace to restore you today. There's grace for whatever it is that you are going through. Wherever you find yourself today, there's grace for that. Whatever situation you find yourself in, there's grace for that. Whatever is going on in your life right now at this instant, there is grace for that. God's grace is there to help you, to sustain you, to strengthen you, to hold you up. That's how grace works. No trial, no situation, no relationship, no heartache is off limits to God's grace. There's grace for whatever you're facing today. The situation, the relationship, the heartache, whatever may say, do not trespass. Grace doesn't obey do not trespass signs. Grace will hop a fence in order to mend fences. Are you open to it? Stand firm in grace today. Stand firm in faith. And when you suffer and you feel like you cannot make it through, know that there is grace. And when you suffer like Peter's audience, remember that suffering reveals two very freeing truths. Suffering will reveal two things to you that will set you free. Number one, you are weak. And number two, God is strong. And if you embrace those truths, it is very freeing as you suffer. Suffering reminds us that we are weak, that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And it reminds us that we desperately need God's grace. And when you can come to grips with the fact that God's grace is enough, that it is sufficient, then you can have the, Peter, the peace that Peter wishes upon you at the end of verse 14. So whatever you're going through today, there's grace. When your children are running from God, there's grace. When you feel so overwhelmed with being a parent, there's grace. When your marriage is struggling, there's grace. And if your marriage is struggling, get help now. That's how God's grace comes to you in community with other believers. If your marriage is falling apart right now, I want you to pull out your iPhone right now and email one of the pastors or email your deacon or email one of the elders or the staff. I'm serious. Right now, pull out your iPhone and email one of the pastors. Our emails are on the back of the worship bulletin or do it as soon as you leave here. If your marriage is falling apart, you need help. Reach out, please. You cannot do this on your own. That's pride. Pride is, we'll figure it out. What did we see two weeks ago? God resists the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the humble. Can you humble yourself right now and fire off an email and say, help? That's all you got to do is just say, help. If you do that, God's grace will come into your life. God's grace will come into your marriage. I'm not saying it's going to be a magic wand. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. Got to work through the mess that you and your spouse have helped to create. But there's grace for that. There is grace for that. God's grace, as we saw last week, flows, or two weeks ago, flows downhill to the humble. Humble yourself 
and get help in the church community. Like all, everyone who's married knows marriage is hard. We're not gonna be like, what? Your marriage is hard? That's weird. Every single one of us that are married know that marriage is hard. Everything that I say to everyone that I counsel is like, it's hard, it's hard. You're gonna wanna quit. You're gonna not love her one day. You're gonna wanna walk away from him. He's gonna drive you nuts. It's hard, hard. And their little sparkly eyes are like, that'll never be us. And I've had couples come back and say, we laughed at you. We said he doesn't know us. He doesn't know how strong our love is. And like six months later, she was mad and wanting, just frustrated with him because he leaves the milk out on the counter every day. Listen, it's hard. The elders, the pastors, the staff, deacons, any godly people here want to help you in your marriage, we're not going to be shocked by that. You can't shock us because we know marriage is hard. Get help. If your marriage is falling apart, there's grace, but you've got to respond and say, help, reach out. And when your life is falling apart and you don't know what's going on, there's grace. And when the devil roars and reminds you of all of your sins, there's grace. Whatever it is that you're struggling with or going through, there's grace for that. Just humble yourself. Grace flows downhill. Whatever you're going through, there's grace for that. And there's a prayer for that too. There's the perfect prayer by Scotty Smith. He says, Holy Spirit, sabotage my every foolish attempt today at self-sufficiency, minimizing my sin, and marginalizing your grace. Holy Spirit, come in and sabotage every foolish attempt where I think I can do it on my own. Sabotage every foolish idea where I minimize my sin and think I'm not that bad. Sabotage every thought where I would try to marginalize your grace and say your grace is not enough. So here's what I want you to do with me right now. I want you to pray this prayer with me out loud. Holy Spirit, sabotage my every foolish attempt today at self-sufficiency, minimizing my sin and marginalizing God's grace. Now I want you to pray it like you mean it. You're talking to God now. You're not just reciting a prayer with other people. You're talking to God and I want you to pray this like you mean it. Here we go. Holy Spirit, sabotage my every foolish attempt today at self-sufficiency, minimizing my sin and marginalizing God's grace. Let's pray one more time. Father, we come as needy and weak people, prideful people who think we have our act together, prideful people who don't want to own up to our sin, prideful people who try to marginalize your grace. God, forgive us. Come in and change this church, change these marriages, change these families. May we rest in the amazing grace that flows down to us in your son, Jesus Christ. And then may he get all the glory and the honor as we continually come back around and point to him and say, it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. What amazing grace. How sweet the sound to sinners like us. We pray for your glory and your honor in our lives In Jesus' name, amen.